Hello everyone, this is Maz. If you're hearing this message, it means you're not part of the Voices of War subscriber community and will only hear the first half of the episode. If that's enough, then I'm thrilled. However, if you're looking to dive deeper into the complexities of war, please consider subscribing to our private feed by using the link at the top of the show notes. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of our episodes, the ability to ask follow-up questions, and we'll become part of an exclusive community that makes this show possible. I hope you'll make the decision to join us today. A war of choice is something upon which one's national destiny does not hang, okay? Russia did not face extinction of its way of life and its values, or as an entity in and of itself, because of the existence of Ukraine. It just didn't. In order to make up for that kind of forced deficit, then they have to remove restraint in order to be able to sort of increase their fighting capacity. And that's never a good idea. Because as soon as you remove restraint, all you do is you harden the other side. Was it fair to ask them, with their limited resources, to do as much as they did? And I would say no. Now, does this explain why certain Special Forces soldiers ended up sloughing some of the restraints to which they were ordinarily expected to operate unto? Yes, it does. The idea that people are resources that can be used over and over and over and over and over again without consequential effect on them is nonsense. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan French Flint, who is an Inamori Research Associate, Military Ethicist, and Strategic Theorist at Case Western Reserve University. Jonathan has previously taught in the UK and has presented at conferences on both sides of the Atlantic, as well as the United States Army Command and General Staff College. He has published on military ethics with the International Committee of the Red Cross, and has also appeared on the Canadian CTV network as a subject matter expert on the war in Ukraine and on military and international affairs more broadly. Jonathan joins me today to discuss strategic theory and how it can help us wrestle with and maybe simplify some of the complexities surrounding whether and how we go to war. Jonathan's particular focus within strategic theory is on the role of potential strategic benefits of ethics when developing a strategy for war. Jonathan, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Oh, delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And just to clarify before we go, it is Johnny, right? You prefer Johnny? It is. Uh, Yes. Mothers and police officers call me Jonathan. <laughs> Good, great. So just that the audience doesn't think uh, I've, I've all of a sudden become rude, but uh, that's why I'm referring to you from here on in as, uh, as Johnny. Um, so firstly, Johnny, I recently read your uh, PhD thesis, which, and I know you've done a lot of work since then uh, and even before it, uh, but it was the original prompt for the discussion. As much as I know that the discussion uh, will go into a number of different uh, aspects. Uh, but before we dive into the perilous waters of military ethics and uh, your work, uh, let's maybe first get a sense of your own background. How did you end up in military ethics? Uh, you know, what motivated that journey in the first place? Well, embarrassingly, I sort of wandered into it. 
Um, <laughs> it's, it's a sort of a bit like a local pub. Um, <laughs> uh, so what happened was um, I went back to college in my late 20s and I went to Ethiopian University, which is, um, you know, anyone can go there. Um, it's a fabulous institution. Then after I finished my, my, my BA, it was like, what do I do next? Well, mm. let's do a master's. And I ended up going to the University of Hull, where I did their master's degree in strategy and international security. And towards the end of that, I was sort of my sort of the dude who was running my my program sort of tried to recruit me for a PhD. And I was sort of interested in sort of I'd had some questions which weren't answered during my master's, and I thought mm, might be fun to might be fun to look at these. And I ended up going to uh, the first conference of the European International Society for Military Ethics. Mm, yeah, just to yeah. just just to kick the tires a bit and everything else. Yeah. And everybody yeah. was really nice. Um, yeah. And um, someone who I'd met previously there, the now sadly late Colonel David Benest, who was a CEO of I think Two Para, um, attended. And, you know, we all got along brilliantly and everyone was terribly welcoming and all yeah. of a sudden, and I'm sat in these sessions and I'm listening to these voices talking about military ethics and I'm thinking, hang on a minute, there's a window here because I'm, you know, I'm now a newly minted strategic thinker, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. I've got my certificate and everything <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, there's a window here because none of this is actually at odds with one another. I don't yeah. think. I think I can square this circle a little bit if I wanted to. And so I thought, well, okay, let's see what happens. And I spent the first year of my PhD effectively inhaling um, people like Michael Waltzer, yeah. you know, and all the sort of the regular canon going back to um, Aquinas and sort of checking out, you know, his rules and sort of bumping into some other sort of people who probably should have discovered beer was invented. And <laughs> um, and all of a sudden it's like, well, this is very interesting, isn't it? And so I, I kind of stuck with it. And I my contention was that you find in the canon of strategic theory literature, you find that ethics gets a fairly short shrift. Yeah, um, yeah. Even my supervisor once sort of said, that you know of course we have to pay lip service to ethics mm -hmm. but it was sort of an it, it, it was it was wasn't how can i put it authentic mm, and okay. my contention is that that actually paying authentic attention to making positive ethical decisions although it may mean managing how we go about things differently is actually more likely going to succeed than not. And I yeah. don't think that the two sides speak different languages necessarily. I think it's just, they both speak the same grammar. I just think that their vocabulary mm. is different. Mm -hmm. Well, given what we're, uh, well, certainly in the Australian case, uh, what we're learning at the moment and how uh, much of a role ethics is playing uh, in our daily coverage of uh, alleged war crimes in Afghanistan, uh, I think uh, you're onto something. Uh, but before we get to, I guess, the the overall uh, concept topic thesis, what is strategic theory? Because uh, oh. many of my listeners might not be familiar uh, with the actual ins and outs of what it actually includes. Well, strategic theory sort of absorbed as sort of a subset of politics. I mean, 
or security studies or anything else. A lot of your readers, uh, a lot of your listeners, sorry, will be um, aware of Clausewitz. Mm. Right? I, I assure uh, you, if, there, if there's one in here, there uh, <laughs> they'll be in trouble. <laughs> well, yeah, well, at least I mean, we're all, it's, it's drummed now, into all of us, at least military exact, people. Exactly. So, so what did he do? Well, he basically sat down and wrote a philosophy of war, if you read the first books. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you ignore the muddy bit in the middle, and you look at the beginning and the end, what he's writing is he's writing a philosophy of war. Yeah. He's writing his philosophical philosophical approach to war. Now, that's not the only way about it. Because, of course, <clears throat> there's Anton Henri de Jomini, of course. Yeah. And he wrote, you know, his approach, which was Napoleon's approach, and involved lots of lines on maps and 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 sort of lots of prescriptive reasons. Both of these guys are trying to get to the same thing. And that thing is coming up with a method of thinking about the conduct of warfare and how it can inform those that conduct it and those who are interested in its conduct. Yeah, yeah, so strategic yeah. theory is effectively, I mean, I mean, and go through Little Hart, Gray, um, Bernard Brody, Herman Kahn, Kissinger sort of, but even going back as far as, um, there's this wonderful book called The Stratagemata of Frontinus. And all of these books are about creating ways of thinking about how to conduct operations, their wider effects and all of that. So strategic theory is like political theory, the theory of strategy, trying yeah, to yeah. explain how war works, how strategy works, and what its best practice is and isn't. And that's yeah, what strategic yeah. theory is. It's, you know, it's, yeah. simply, it's simply trying to get to grips with the intellectual part of war which a lot of people don't think exists. And actually, <laughs> mm. war is a very intellectual exercise. Mm, mm. Well, it's an all-consuming exercise, right? But what, what, I'm, what yes. I'm just perplexed about is the fact that what well, you're saying that um, ethics never seem to play a big role in strategic theory or doesn't feature as a pillar of strategic theory. Certainly more in the modern time, it seems to have gone away from that sort of. Now, I'm not going to blame Sir Lawrence Friedman for this, but yeah. that sort of Sir Lawrence sort of established the Department of War Studies and created war studies as a as as a genre, as a sort of as an aspect of the of the academy. And you know, Sir Lawrence is 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 not without ethics. I mean, I I, I love him deeply um but some of his contemporary writers and even going back to other people who have dabbled in strategic theory like adolf hitler yeah. and others um have tried ha have sort of made victory at all cost yeah, yeah um yeah. part of the thinking and we see that today in current um in, in current political discourse yeah. um the former president of the United States, um, Donald Trump, once stated that the laws of war were for losers and people only lent on the laws of war if they were losing. And mm. so one must assume then that from his conception, therefore, that fighting without the laws of war, without sort of this commonly agreed boundary of what's acceptable and not acceptable in war, that is sort of in his view as commander in chief a sort of the zenith of practice yeah, and yeah. that see the thing is that you know we see we see words like lip service paid to ethics in canon or we see for example uh colin gray sort of 
virtually, you know, at times seemingly dismiss the idea of being good because we are held to um, the, the strategic theorist, the strategist, the soldier is held to the moral imperative of victory. Mm, and mm, mm. I, part of me questions whether that's an entirely sustainable position to take. And so what I tried to do, you know, what I try to do in sort of some of the stuff I do is to say that is actually unsustainable yeah. and that there is a more sustainable way of doing it, but you might not like what it costs. Yeah, right. Okay. And, and we'll definitely get to that. Uh, but uh, Absolutely. To, to what extent do you think this also has something to do with our definition of victory or the lack thereof? Well, victory is one of those slippery terms, isn't yeah. it? Um, what are the conditions of victory? I mean, let's look at Afghanistan. Let's just yeah. pull that from the sky right now yeah. and say, okay, so the conditions of victory in Afghanistan were actually relatively straightforward originally. Originally, yeah. yeah. Originally, which was the removal of the Taliban government from power in Afghanistan. Okay, great. Happy days. Well, initially was even well, even even earlier than that was the uh, removal of Al Qaeda. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, which was the original reason, of, right? Yeah, yeah but w yeah. one followed from the other. That's to be right. Fair. Yeah, so it's already, um, it's already the first morphing of. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> of but the, of but, the reason, but yeah. then but then the thing is, it starts getting a bit slippery after that because then what's the condition of victory? You, you mm. know, okay, so mm. we're there. We've won. Now, what is it? I don't like the term victory anymore. Because mm. it's it's slippery and it's difficult in to define in certain certain conflicts. I like the idea of conditions of success. What do we need to do to say that mm. this is a mm. this is a, that this has been a successful operation? Great, yeah. Great, what yeah. does a successful withdrawal from Afghanistan look like? What does a successful withdrawal from Iraq look like? You know, mm. a managed withdrawal from Iraq. What are we leaving behind? Um, and this goes back to the lessons that we learned in 1917 and the lessons that we further learned in 1945. So the lessons that we learned in, 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 in 1917, well, we beat the Germans. Hooray. Great. Happy days. We then exacted horrendous punishment on the Germans, flattened their economy, stripped them of any kind of source of national pride and hobbled their, their industry. And all we did was create the conditions for the Second World War. Then, then, but then. the First World War was a victory, right? Second World War, it was a victory. However, what we sort of paid attention to was also the conditions of success. What were the conditions of success of the Second World War? First, beat Germany. Second, make sure it can't happen again. And then, how do we do then, that? Then. Well, the Marshall Plan and then. things like that. And then we sort of, and our condition of success was having a safe, certainly in West Germany's case, democratic West Germany bound by laws with enough constitutional safeguards to be a good neighbor to the rest of Europe. Mm, mm, mm. And a demilitarized and so, populace, I guess, in many ways. Yeah. Demilitarized-ish. Yeah. But that's the thing, because Germany was thoroughly demilitarized after the First World War. But the Second World War, Germany in stages was allowed to reform the Bundeswehr. It was allowed to reform the... Um, uh, its air force. It was mm. allowed to create a navy, and it, you know now these had constitutional safeguards around mm. them, mm. which mm. the Germans were perfectly happy with, by the way. But mm. the thing is that what we did was we left Germany capable of becoming, an, for example, ultimately a NATO member mm. and mm. a good mm. neighbor. Now that's not to say that we didn't spend a lot of time in Germany, sort of backing them up and keeping an eye on them. 
But the important thing was that we set a condition of success that Germany should be safe, prosperous, and well run. Mm, mm, yeah. And that's what we got. Yeah. 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 No, and that's, uh, but that's certainly not what we got uh, in Afghanistan or Iraq. Uh, and, again, no. I guess, and I guess that's perhaps the, the, the point that you're trying to make that our definition of victory, at, you know, certainly for these two conflicts, uh, hasn't been clearly articulated. And therefore, well, we, f- we didn't have the resources, I, you know, to institute that. Whatever that you know, those conditions well, for success that, might have been. Well, I th- I think, I mean, I think what's interesting about those two conflicts, which stands very much apart from the world wars, is that both Afghanistan and Iraq are definitely wars of choice, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not wars of necessity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. wars of choice bring with them a far harder, a, a much greater challenge of defining what victory actually looks like mm, because mm. the reasons for doing it are also quite complex and very mm. difficult, you know, and difficult to articulate at times. And so the more complicated the cause of the war, the more complicated the conditions of success they are to, to yeah, define. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's yeah. broadly where we go. Yeah. I actually had a question on that uh, uh, for you about, you know, this this difference between uh, war of necessity and war of choice, because there are different ethical imperatives in both. And in my mind, I'm still struggling to understand sufficiently well how a war of choice, by the sheer fact that it's not the last resort, because it's we have a choice. In other words, it's not a matter of, as much as people will say, well, you know, even in the defensive war, you have a choice, you can, you know, roll over and, and, and die or fight. But, you know, that, that choice is much easier to make, right? As in, in the sense that you will defend uh, because every animal will. That's what a, a, yes. an animal will do and uh, the human animal uh, as well. Whereas a war of choice is where we're making a conscious, cognitive, non-emotive, uh, presumably rational decision to interfere in, in some conflict or, or start a conflict uh, for reasons other than mere necessity. And I still haven't been able to reconcile how, how, if, uh, well, war of choice can ever be ethical. Well, what I would definitely challenge you saying mm-hmm. that it's an unemotional decision, um, or even a, you know, in some cases, a rational decision. Well, well I was, I, 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 I would have put that in air quotes if I could, because yes. it's, because because it's because seemingly so, right? That's at least in narratives, yeah. and and you it know, is take Afghanistan, take Iraq. For example, uh, you know, especially you, Iraq, I would say. Yeah, you have to. I, I right. I mean, the, okay. So let's go for war of necessity. Now that's relatively straightforward, isn't it? I'm mm. being attacked. I must defend. That's okay. Ukraine right now. That's Ukraine right in now. In a nutshell. Now, yeah. right. Okay. Um, fine. Easy. Happy. Very easy to understand. War of choice. Well, the problem with the war of choice is that it's really broad, right? Mm. So I can justly start a war of choice if I so choose. Okay, I can be motivated by sympathy for a country that is defending itself and declare war on the country that's attacking it. And I can very, you know, I can rationally say, because I I don't have any skin in the game on this one. Let's say, uh, let's let's take, uh, let's say Burma and Thailand, sorry, Myanmar and Thailand start knocking seven bells out of one another. Okay. And that Burmese troops are committing war crimes against Thai um, against Thai civilians. Now, I, as America, the superpower, don't have a lot of skin in this game. 
Mm. regionally it's not particularly interesting it's in china's backyard i don't want to tweak them mm, uh, yeah, yeah. you know i get i get nice restaurants and shrimp imported from thailand but that's about the, yeah. the extent of my interest however i can emotionally and rationally say that i can justly enter this conflict against myanmar in defense of the ties because it's yeah. perfectly reasonable for me to go to war in defense of someone else or mm, in defense, okay. so it I feels can like, do it that. It feels like it's almost a third category, and, I, and, I've, and I've read this somewhere. But someone else talk about this, yeah. But it isn't. Yeah, yeah. but it yeah. isn't. It all falls into this one big ugly category. So the it feels war like the moral. It could not be described as moral necessity, though. That's what the, the basis of R two P is, right? Well, as in it's, it's, yes, and that's. But that's the problem with R two P, isn't mm, it? Because mm, if mm, you mm. declare we are going to be guided by responsibility to protect, we're never going to be not fighting. Because okay. a, yeah, a okay. true commit, a true okay. commitment yeah. to responsibility yeah, to protect means that you are now involved in every conflict in the world, and you have to try and pick which side you want, even when both sides are utterly disgusting. Mm, because you okay. have a responsibility yeah. to protect. Yeah, yeah. So the problem with R two P is that there is a, you know, whilst R two P is great, and I love the responsibility to protect. The problem with it is that I don't think anyone has enough capability to be truly led by r2p you have to pick your fights yeah unfortunately because it's so hugely subjective exactly i mean, exactly. It, it, I mean it's yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is other people may think that other th you know other things you know other sides have they have a responsibility to protect other sides now r2p for example created kosovo uh, uh -huh. and i think yeah. and, and i love it uh, and and that kosovo has lived in relative peace and security although it has horrendous problems <laughs> is better than what happened prior to the establishment of Kosovo yeah. however you know that wasn't without risks um, yeah. the race for Pristina airport for example where we very nearly ended up with western troops facing off against russian troops and that could yeah. have been very very messy yeah. so there yeah. is you know unfortunately there always has to be that tang of interest involved in there and we may indeed get now to go back to my thailand example yeah. it may be that america values its farmed shrimp um consumption so much that it may say that well i also have an interest in the region i like cheap shrimp and so yeah. you know it may say that that is the rational reason upon which i'm going to hang this or one of the reasons i'm going to hang this to try and make the case for going to war now yeah. going back to your ukrainian thing this is a war of choice on behalf of russia yeah. Yeah. now it's been sold to the russian people mm -hmm. yeah. by the president as a war of necessity but yeah. it is a war of choice and the reason why I say it's a war of choice is because a war of choice is something upon which one's national destiny does not hang. Mm. Okay. Russia did not face extinction of its way of life and its values or as an entity in and of itself because of the existence of Ukraine. Mm. It just mm. didn't. And mm. so Russia has chosen to fight that war. And so that is a war of choice. The invasion of Germany, the invasion by Germany of France or the Sudetenland or the Benelux, yeah. that was a choice, the aggressor's choice there. Yeah. They made yeah. those choices, yeah. okay? Yeah. And, you know, ignoring any claims of preemptory self-defense or anything else like that, it's absolute nonsense. The thing is that, you know, there is always, you know, I would suggest there's always an element of choice in whichever side decides to move first. Because, of, but 
the other side is, you know, may not be facing extinction, at which point it becomes, you know, another war of choice. The mm. other side may be reinforced by people who have decided to enter a war of choice. But the war of necessity in and of itself is is simply the the, the act of defense. Um yeah. So, okay. you know, it gets kind yeah. of interesting when you start looking at it in those terms. It, it gets interesting and I think it gets also fuzzy because, I mean, because in my mind, there's a difference between, you know, intervening, you know, in your example of, uh, of, of Thailand, uh, there's, a, there's a moral imperative because they say there's genocide, there's, you know, ex, uh, uh, ethnic cleansing yeah. or whatever it might be. That to me is a different choice or different compulsion to get involved than say, uh, Australia joining the US in the invasion of Iraq, which is also a war of choice. Now, both of them are yep. war of choice, but there's a different. But there's a different uh, there's a, a morality at play in my mind. There's a different impulse. Well, mm, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> at this point, I will come clean. I was living in New York City um, on September the 11th. Um, uh -huh. I smelled the dust. I heard the sirens. I didn't see the towers fall. I was uh -huh. living in Queens at the time. Um, shouldn't be a surprise i ended up where i did um but the mm. i think you have to remember back to those times on that one and the general sense of offense against and you know put, I, I don't know if we would call it an international morality or certainly one but or, or a sort of a sympathy between the western philosophical nations so that would include australia new zealand united kingdom etc etc france you know europe yeah, yeah, yeah. um that general sense of offense that they felt at the attack on the twin towers and sort of the things that came out following that um yeah well yeah and also sort of the general paranoia and 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 upset that something so big could be taken down so quickly by a group so small um yeah, and so well. you know those were strange times i remember them um yeah. and i think in that case where it was such a catastrophic damage to the, to the west's self-image that i think that most contributors to the uh, to, to the operation in afghanistan definitely thought that this was the right thing to do if for no other reason that but for the grace of god go we um and and it was it was, yeah, it was strange yeah. now when we talk about for example the coalition of the willing in our iraq i think we're on much firmer ground because that one yeah, was yeah, yeah. that one was odd from the beginning um yeah, yeah. there was no rational reason to do it um you know you hear scott well, they were interested. They were, in they were interested. Yeah, certainly, in Australia's case, right? Which to me is the yeah. rationale, which is well, the, 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 it's almost colder it is. I mean, and, it's, and more, it's, more clear than the it emotional is. response. I mean, yeah. I mean, that, but, but but it's still but it's still not necessarily rational because fundamentally, uh -huh. Hussein was still back in his box. Um, he didn't have a lot of maneuvering room. There were no fly zones of other north and south of the country. Um, sort of Iraqi Kurdistan was happily doing its thing um yeah. you know the only real problem with afghan you know with iraq at the time i would suggest is he was effectively unpunished yeah. um yeah. and the knots that 
the US and the British government tied themselves into to justify the use of force was really quite impressive. And, you know, <laughs> I recommend anyone read the reports that came out from the United Kingdom sort of after uh, and read between the lines of that. And, and you can sort of sense the sense of bafflement about it like a chilcott chilcott inquiry chilcott yeah the, the, and, yeah 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 uh, which was rather explicit in its uh <laughs> summation that this was uh you know <laughs> well almost fabricated right the yes. reasons to, to go yeah. to going and that it explicitly states that it was an illegal war yeah and, and what's interesting yeah. i think it was the chilcott inquiry which is one that and a boy phrased this before so lawrence friedman sat on mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> right that's he, interesting okay. yeah he, right. i think it was chilcott wow. he sat on and so that's interesting. He, yeah so yeah he was i think he was larry was on chilcott and i think so this is sort of again this is sort of super interesting because of course hey. you, you know i mean and well to just to, to go back to 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 this um wars of choice are messy um, yeah. And you're never going to find a consistent rationale for them. You're never yeah, going to yeah. find. Now, Blair tried to put one down in Chicago with his famous Chicago speech, which basically said, if we don't like what you're doing inside your borders, we're going to fix it. Um, yeah. Interestingly, that speech was basically written by Sir Lawrence Friedman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the plot thickens. <laughs> Uh, uh, well. I, the way I've heard the story told, I don't know if there's any truth mm. on this, but Blair didn't have anything to say in Chicago. And so one of his aides phoned up Sir Lawrence and said, do you have anything on the boil? And allegedly, and this is say, this is probably apocryphal, Sir Lawrence sent over some notes on something he'd be working on. And basically well, yeah. Blair on the plane over sort of put ladies and gentlemen at the top and thank you very much on the bottom <laughs> and then read it. <laughs> I just read it. <laughs> Oh but God! He, well, but, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, but yeah. but he was. But but you know. So 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 Lawrence is interested in in this too, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and everything else because it's quite a moral statement, isn't it? If we do not yeah, like yeah. that you are committing genocide inside your borders, we reserve the right to 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 intervene. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's great because it is actually a very clean, very safe, or very unsafe for some. But it's a very yeah. clean, very direct uh, statement of policy. The thing yeah. about the wars of choice and the way, for example, R2P has evolved, or more accurately, died slightly, and everything else yeah, is yeah, that yeah, yeah. what we have, it, you will never find consistent rationale for involvement in wars of choice yeah. by people yeah, because sort of choosing yeah. to start one. Because um, yeah. it feels like there's a perpetual clash between some idealized values that we try to project. Yep. Uh, and live by or you know set the standard for and ultimately the interests that we end up well, pursuing it's the it's that cold hard reality that um was sort of articulated and again a lot of your listenership is going to groan when i say this but articulated by thucydides it's that mm -hmm. you know, why do men go to war asks thucydides thucydides says because of fear honor and interest yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. and honestly, actually, when you look at it, and you you know yeah. you, you pluck that on. out yeah. and you say, well, what are the you know now? A lot of people say, well, you, you know, he's old hat and everything else. But the thing is, if you apply that test to walls of choice, then all of a sudden it gets again it's super interesting, doesn't it? Because why do people start? You know, why does the aggressor start a war of choice? Well, it may be because of an articulated fear, or it may be because yeah. of an articulated interest or it may be because of articulated honor and those yeah, are the three yeah. reasons so why did russia yeah. start 
why did Russia start a fight in Ukraine? Yeah. Well, we might yeah. suggest because of certainly a publicly articulated fear, yeah. certainly yeah. a publicly articulated sense of honor that Ukraine had yeah. always been part of Russia, and yeah. certainly an articulated interest in preventing NATO from expanding into, yeah. for example, Ukraine. All the European yeah. Union is expanding into Ukraine. So there, you know, all of a sudden, you know, which we can sort of dig up a four thousand year old dead Greek and say, actually, yeah. he may be on the money on this one. I couldn't agree more. Which then, again, as as an aspiring military ethicist, <laughs> I then come down to the question: What is the point of military ethics then? Right? Because I mean, are we just trying to 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 uh, soothe uh, a wound that's uh, yeah never to be patched up? Right? What I is mean, the point just, of oh yeah. Oh, ouch. What is the point of military ethics? The point of military ethics is to make sure that you don't lose your soul in the purpose, in the process of achieving the policy. Yeah, okay. Okay, that's a good one. That's a good one. And again, if we're looking at wars of choice, many would say, not even just me, but I, I'm certainly one amongst them, that we have perhaps lost our soul in Iraq and Afghanistan. Are we? Are we now morally bleeding because of those two wars and the things that we have participated in, that we have done uh, as those who've, uh, who have deployed, uh, and is our soul um, as Western militaries somehow wounded? And uh, judging by the figures of moral injury, PTSD, um, suicides, etc., uh, now I don't have hard evidence on this, but there's certainly anecdotal evidence, uh, and certainly through a number of people that I've spoken with, that those, the, the way we fought the war, those two wars, the reasons we fought those two wars, and the way we left those two wars uh, has certainly contributed to moral injury of many of our troops. I remember when the withdrawal happened, a friend of mine who is a Special Forces medic in the US Special Forces, uh, he's now a recruiter, um, phoned me up. But it broke, and I'm sat in my office, uh, phone to my ear, and he's just like, what was the point? And there's certainly lots of people thinking that, and of course that, you know, that doesn't go to, 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 to deny the people who came back actively harmed with injuries, psychological injuries, um, which run the gamut from, you know, post-traumatic stress right the way through to yeah. the very technical term that is moral injury. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that those 20 years cost those that fought those 20 years much more than blood and treasure. Now, I'm not yeah. saying that they lost their souls, but I think they got, I think they were soul injured. And I think yeah. that is, a, you know, it's not just the physical injuries that came back, but there's, a, there's, there's now generations of soldiers who have come back either injured through what they saw or injured by what they didn't see on the withdrawal and, and yeah. you know that sense of well we went there we died there and what was the point and i think i think that's a fair question yeah, i don't think yeah. um now do i think militaries are 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 themselves soul sick i no i think that they're in fairly robust soul health however i think they have some very hard self-interrogation to do yeah. about whether they can keep that going and i think that, that runs the gamut 
And I think it's one of these things that the military is a great social experiment. It in, um, in the United States, the military integrated before the rest of society. Yeah. Um, when you look at, for example, the Detroit riots, um, initially the governor tried to use National Guard troops to quell the um, Detroit riots. And these were all white farm boys from wider Michigan. Yeah. And it was yeah. only when the airborne regular army were deployed did things calm down. And why did it calm down? Because the white soldiers in the um, you know, in that regiment had been working alongside friends with and and everything else with African American soldiers. Mm, and it's only mm, so mm. now there might be a case to make that when it comes to matters of, for example, integration, particularly of women into the force, um mental health care, um mm. sexual assault and other things that the last 20 years have seen militaries so occupied by something else, uh, i.e. fighting a war, that they haven't been able to quite keep pace with that, with, with sort of the, the trailblazing that they used to do when it came to yeah, attitudes yeah. inside society. And I do yeah. think that there are some sort of older attitudes that still unfortunately float around a little bit um, about, yeah. for example, places of, you know, gender roles, about, for example, mental health and things like that. And because these armies have been so incredibly busy doing um, other things, that they haven't sort of been able to see actually we may be you know what we're thinking about now is we're having yeah. to play a little bit of catch up on this yeah. and i think this is yeah. something that actually features into the thinking of i mean some of the very very most interesting officers i've met are people who are interested in okay where do we go from here and it's quite yeah. difficult in the current political environment here because of course then they get branded being woke whereas mm, yeah. you know the british army leaned in on it and did a did a did a post of recruiting campaign saying, "Oi, snowflakes, we need your yeah. empathy." And yeah. so it's watching yeah. these two sides of the Atlantic try to get to grips with how do we go forward. And it's yeah. you know the, the, the military is always going to be roughy tufty, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's always going to be fairly rough and tumble. There's always going to be areas in which sort of people are going to some people may react with distaste to attitudes held, but the thing is, I think that. It's become sort of an imperative now to 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 find a way of trying to mitigate some of that injury which has been caused mm. previously mm. in the last twenty years, and as a matter of prevention. And that's the interesting bit. The interesting bit now going forward is okay. So we've taken this beating, we've taken this licking, we have had hundreds, thousands injured. Now, what do we do to prevent that injury going forward? Mm. And that's yeah, sort of, yeah. and that's going to be the interesting part. How do they develop in their way? And ultimately to win wars as well. And which ultimately is, which is, to go back to winning wars. Yeah, yeah, which is obviously the reason we, well, I, I hope we'd want to go to a war, which yeah. perhaps is a neat pivot to uh, your thesis and some of the thinking within it. Because uh, I'm conscious that we've uh, not necessarily derailed, but uh, there's just so many interesting threads here uh, yeah, that I've almost know, forgotten <laughs> that there was a that there was an actual uh, reason that we wanted yes. to talk, <laughs> and that is the and that is your actual thesis, which is uh, uh, and and I must admit, and, and we jokingly said, you know, I hope 
uh, before we start recording. I certainly hope that this doesn't, that you turn this into a book, that this doesn't remain uh, merely a thesis uh, that, you know, as, uh, as, uh, as we all know, is the kind of joke that uh, the person, the spouse, their supervisor and the examiner reads, uh, you know, leaving it to, you know, at most half a dozen people. Because certainly uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it and there were so many threads uh, in that thesis and so many resources that I've underlined uh, for my own uh, follow-up as well. Uh, but maybe uh, you can just give us a quick kind of wave tops uh, what is the thesis uh, okay. uh, about and what's what's motivated it as well? Right. So, you, you know, you should always be able to answer a question in a sentence. My th- the, the, the argument presented is that being good in the sense of morally positive is actually good strategy. Uh-huh. That's it. <laughs> so, making the right decisions from a a moral perspective that are morally defensible is actually entirely a, you know, it leads to good strategic decision-making. There are consequential adjustments needed to sort of ensure that, but that allows for a certain amount of flexibility, which actually further reinforces the idea that it's potentially good strategy. That's Mm. it. So Uh that making the right decisions from a moral perspective, we you know we could use the term moral perspective is a is a, or a defensible again a defensible yeah. decision against morality, i.e., not putting babies on spikes is actually a good idea to help us win the war. There you go. Right. That's so it. so perfect. Now the audience yeah. listening, two things might pop up in their mind. Firstly, uh, okay. How is that a surprise? As in, in in the grand scheme of things, why should we surprised at that, right? Because it sounds so reasonable, right? And then secondly, the flow on from that is obviously, if this is a thesis, you know, a PhD thesis, then we obviously haven't been doing that. Uh, if you're proving that doing something like including ethics uh, and ethical and, and and morality in our uh, in the conduct of of war uh, being good, obviously we haven't been doing it. Well, would those two be accurate? Kind of. I mean, part of me was uh, when writing this. Part of me was sort of going up against a lot of the literature. Okay, a lot of the literature wasn't particularly interested in being good. A lot of the literature was just interested in victory. And so right. well, that's and that's that's important. Yeah, that's, that's important. an important point. Um, yeah. uh, but and so there's sort of some questions there about you, 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 and. Talking to some, not all practitioners, um, some had the view that sort of it actually you can go back to sort of a comment that you you frequently heard about Afghanistan. How can we win with one hand tied behind our back? Uh, um, uh-huh. so, and uh. what I want you to see, it, part of me wants to sort of argue on that and say that. Okay, so you've got one hand tied behind your back, but what can you do? And if Uh, you have one hand tied behind your back, what do you need to be able to win? Do you need another bloke with his hand tied behind his back as well? Because then you've got two hands. You know, that's uh, the question. Um, Yeah. yeah, But also there's a, sorry to jump in, there's also something there, the implied that there's a hand behind my back, meaning basically that I can't, uh, employ my force to its full potential. Exactly. That that in yeah. itself is, is perhaps a problem. That that rationale, right? That it, it, yeah. should, it should be so that me not using these these techniques, processes, procedures, like for example torture, yeah. they shouldn't even enter uh, uh, my spectrum 
of uh, things that I can do with both hands. Right? I agree. So therefore, yes. so therefore, I shouldn't have had any hands tied up behind my back. I've got both hands. It's just that my two hands are capable only operating uh, on this spectrum yeah. uh, out of the available spectra that exist of uh, of human action. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, you, you know, I, I think what was interesting was the reception of um, courageous restraint. Um, now, I don't know if you know courageous restraint, uh, generated by uh, General McChrystal. Um, where he basically said, don't do anything until you're absolutely sure, effectively. And even if you're shot at, try and restrain yourself as much as possible. And there was an interesting BBC documentary, which I forget the name of, which talked to soldiers about the policy of courageous restraint when it was sort of introduced into British forces. And sort of initially, there was quite some scepticism. And then they went back to the same soldiers and, you know, the answer was, we couldn't do the job without it. Ha, huh, um. really? So what you're telling me is that by not functioning at your full capacity to deliver force, you're actually finding benefits, particularly in this war of choice environment. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Why is that? What's going on yeah, there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Everything else. Now, there are, you know, the <coughs> Gallagher's of this world or anything else who uh, uh, and those that supported the uh, policy of torture and have a grave and everything else say, no, we absolutely needed it. This is what we needed to do and everything else. I mean, uh, John Yu, the writer of the infamous torture memo, sort of see, doesn't seem to need convincing that torturing people is actually, you know, quite handy. And yeah, fundamentally, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I would disagree. Um, and I certainly would disagree with people who try and defend that position because, again, another idea that McChrystal developed is sort of super you know super interesting. He sort of articulated it, although we kind of already knew it, which is this idea of insurgent math. And, yeah, yeah. you know, his, his idea of insurgent math, you know, you kill one innocent person, you just generated another 10 insurgents. Um, yeah, yeah. So at which point then we have to say that there is actually there an operational requirement to be restrained because if I kill one innocent child and I generate 10 more insurgents, that's 10 more insurgents that I and other soldiers around me have to deal with at a later date and yeah, all yeah. of a sudden then i you know what i'm doing is i'm just sort of i've got a self-generating enemy there which i don't particularly want to have if i'm looking yeah. to enforce something looking like a civil peace and mm, mm, mm. it's completely counterproductive yeah yeah and, yeah. and the thing yeah. is that being fighting without the restraint is counterproductive yeah. Let's look again at Ukraine. So we have seen the horrifying aftermath of Russian occupation or attack on towns in Ukraine. You know, victims of rape, uh, summary execution, etc., etc., etc. Now, what do we think that's going to do to the Ukrainian will to fight? Uh, yeah. It's going to harden yeah. it. And it's just going to make Russia's job harder. Not only has it hardened Ukraine's will to fight, but it's also increased other states, United States, Great Britain, yeah. France, Germany, to equip Ukraine because of the horrifying 
um, character of what Russia is doing inside the borders of Ukraine. And so what has Russia done? Okay, it might. And I use this word with no sense of approval. It might feel good to kill a Ukrainian. It might in that moment for, you know, I don't know. I would use the term private snuffy if he was American. Private snufsky to kill a Ukrainian civilian in the middle of the street or shoot a Ukrainian dog. Okay. It might feel good. Yeah. You know, that's me. I'm fighting. I'm leading the war. Yeah. Congratulations, private. Congratulations, captain. You have now just generated another 10, 20, 30, 40 Ukrainian volunteers. Yeah. 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 And let's see how that's gone for Russia. Well, we're in the second year of the conflict right now. The three-day invasion. The three-day special The three-day special operation. And we're now, it started in February last year. Yeah. Yeah. So it's now 16 months long. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So, so, and the, I want to get to I want to get to the individual factors uh, of the model that you discussed because yeah. you've already alluded to a couple there. But just before we get to that, I think it's important uh, to clarify uh, what we mean firstly by a- uh, ethics, yep. morals, and yep. morality because yep. those three terms uh, are often used uh, interchangeably. Yes, they uh, are. But of course, in you, in your description, and I, and I really liked it, and, and, and I thought it really answered the question in my mind. Uh, the distinction between those three, uh, it might be worthwhile uh, going through those. Okay, so, uh, yeah. Um, now, yes, they are usually used interchangeably. Now, I, I, I have to caveat, caveat any answer with the fact that I am not a philosopher, okay? Mm-hmm. And anything that I have written is gleefully um, disavowed by philosophy because this is me sort of trying to, partly pulling a semantic trick to try and get this um to try and clarify the argument but also just mm-hmm. to make it more understandable for people like me who aren't philosophers so mm, okay. right, mor- morals yeah. morals is an internal condition i have morals you have morals um everybody has some kind of moral code in their head and it's been installed by different ways usually by socialization um belief in god religious observance and all that other kind of fun stuff and you have this code inside your head and then we live inside a morality and that morality is sort of the wider moral the entire you know so in a society we can say a society has a certain morality and that may yeah. change or may be different but broadly speaking we all agree on the same things rape is bad murder is bad um kittens are good things like that okay yeah, and yeah. ethics is sort of the <clears throat> external to the individual but internal to morality in the sense that we have to make morally and ju- or just decisions that are justifiable against morality in an environment of competing demands both moral and physical mm-hmm, um, yeah. so for example tuna fish sandwiches i trust me i'm going somewhere with this now mm-hmm. i don't eat tuna because I don't like it, but I could also make the decision about tuna fish sandwiches that I refuse to eat tuna on principle because tuna stocks are um, completely, uh, you know, are being depleted. So let's agree that mm-hmm. I take the second position. I disagree with tuna fishing. Now, I have a tuna fish sandwich, which I refuse to eat, but someone who is starving hungry, I could give them that tuna fish sandwich mm. and the hunger would be relieved but the thing is that i am not morally 
I'm opposed to giving them the tuna fish sandwich because I disapprove of giving uh, of fishing tuna. The wider morality says that I should probably give that person the tuna fish sandwich because they're starting yeah, hungry. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. right, fine, happy day. So there's so a clash I, between the morality and your own morals and in this morals, case. And then I have to make yep. the ethical yep. decision. And what's the ethical decision? The ethical decision is that I should give them the tuna fish sandwich. Uh, uh, However, it might not be. Uh, and this is where it gets really exciting. Because uh, if that person, depending on how hungry that person is. Now, let's say I have a tuna fish sandwich and I have just walked into a concentration and I have just relieved a concentration camp. Is it ethical for me to give the tuna fish sandwich to one of the victims of this concentration camp? Mm, mm, mm. And the well, answer no, is, having read your thesis, I know I, I, I know the answer. What, so uh, yeah, what, yeah, and what is the answer? Yeah, yeah well, the, they, therefore, it's not because it, it, it's not. in in this instance, because, yeah. yeah, that's right, because it will kill them. It, it will, will kill it will them. Kill them because of yeah, that's right, yeah. because of the components yeah. in it. All right. Now yeah. the thing yeah. is, I'm also violently morally opposed to oatmeal. I think mm-hmm. oatmeal is a terrible thing and shouldn't be given to anyone. Now, mm. if I'm in the con- in the concentration camp environment, mm. I am morally obligated to give the oatmeal to the concentration camp victim because the oatmeal is probably something that they can digest and begin to gain strength from, even though I'm morally opposed mm. to oatmeal in the same way that Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes is morally opposed to oatmeal because mm. 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 it's mm. horrible. Mm. But, these are the, <laughs> but so, so, so the mm. thing is that ethical decision-making is dynamic. And so mm. what mm. we can't say is ethical in one decision is not ethical necessarily ethical in another decision. It's entirely ethical for me to give, you know, it is an, it's an ethical demand that I give someone who is simply hungry a tuna sandwich. That's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. Even if I disapprove yeah. of tuna, I am ethically obligated to give the tuna sandwich. However, in the concentration camp, I am ethically obligated to not give them the tuna sandwich yeah, yeah, and to give yeah, them instead yeah. oatmeal. And so the yeah, problem with yeah. ethics is it's dynamic, in my yeah. view. Now, other people yeah. will disagree, and yeah. they're probably right. But ethics yeah. is, a dy- is a state of dynamic decision-making based against internal value sets and wider prevailing morality to come to the right decision. Right. Okay. I, I, I like that because it makes it also very subjective. Uh, and yes. In, in, and how we interpret what is ethical, in other words, what is right and wrong, uh, is hugely subjective, uh, which again makes the work of the <laughs> military ethicist <laughs> all, all the more hard. Uh, yes. So, so, which is why I really liked then your model and the breakdown of your model because, uh, uh, you know, it, it, in my the way I was really in fact that's a question who did you write who did you ideally write your thesis for and who do you think could most benefit from reading it um so who did I write it for I wrote um my target audience was my mother if she could understand it anyone could um no no the the, rel- the relative you know, the intelligent <laughs> yes she has number Great. five yeah. um but she is so, uh, no, the, the the relatively well-educated non-subject matter expert who has oh, yeah. interest now traditionally a lot of theses are written to sound very intelligent and to, to 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 please the academic audience and yeah i i mean i had to write it for a degree right i had to please the academic audience that was not my target audience my target audience is the interested non-subject matter expert who's interested in thinking about these things so for example you mm. let's mm-hmm. say the major 
or the colonel or the lieutenant colonel or the captain or the lieutenant and possibly you know and possibly even in fact indeed the non-commissioned officer the, this is aimed at people who don't know bugger all about this but they have an interest in it and my you know and i want to articulate across the reading spectrum as best i possibly can so that it includes everybody in the discussion and not just for example a bunch of military ethicists at a conference i'm Perfect, interested yeah. in actually addressing to the practitioner the people who actually have had things thrown at them which go bang yeah. and possibly yeah. have suffered losses in combat and anything else like that so that they can understand you know so that they can approach and address this these ideas in a way that's that that's not too threatening and doesn't yeah, use too many yeah, big words yeah, or anything else like that. Yeah. That's what I'm interested in. I'm, I'm interested in. I'm interested in my friend Sergeant Major, now Flight Sergeant Niokas. I'm interested yeah, yeah. in my friend Colonel Brunton. I'm interested in yeah. my friend Colonel Benest. I'm yeah. not necessarily interested in, you know, Doctor Such and Such from yeah, Watson yeah, State yeah. University. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Perfect. And uh, well, you'll be pleased to hear that uh, it certainly resonated with, resonated with me uh, as and a I'm really delighted. interested observer. Uh, because it, and I'm also a very visual learner, so I really like the way you set out the model and you help us throughout your thesis by, you know, updating the, the visual model that you present. That's uh, funny. Uh, I took it, such a pasting during my exam for that. <laughs> it uh, was called. It was uh, called a distraction. <laughs> Okay, that's interesting. See that uh, again. That's perhaps the where, where the divergence occurs, right? Of the perhaps the practitioner versus the academic, uh, because it and, and this is not to say this is not an academic text. It is right. It, it, it's but but also there's humour. There's your own personality is deeply infused in it, uh, and I've chuckled more than once uh, just because of the phrasing that you use and uh, and even the the jokes that you use, which which kind of takes it. And, and I'd imagine you probably would have been grilled for that a little bit as well because it does I have a. It's a little. A little bit, a little bit personal. It, it has, it, it's stamped with your personal character. It's not, you know, a a, a sterile document. <laughs> I, I got away with that actually, and um, yeah, I great. think it's possibly by dint of reputation inside the institution and okay. luck from my uh, external, my external examiner, because his stuff was all like that too. And, and I and I think it's great, which is why I say I hope this becomes a book uh, uh, because it is. It is not. It is not merely a thesis, or at least you know I've read a few, and you know this is one that I wanted to come back to, as opposed oh, to great. one that I was well. The, I, I was I was forcing myself to read, right? So there's <laughs> there, and there and, and there is a difference, right? There is a difference. But there I do is. want to come back to now this yeah. model. Uh, so perhaps uh, can you lay out the key components of your model uh, and how they interplay? Because as I as I said a couple of times now, it draws a very clear picture in my mind of the dynamics of war. Uh, you know that, that might help. Uh, our listeners visualize what we're talking about well okay so i i describe it as effectively a football game um we if you imagine a ball on the field and two competing teams trying to get the ball into two competing goals okay now all we have to do from that is imagine that the you know now anyone who's kicked a beach ball knows that they don't go where you want them to go right whereas anyone who's kicked a football knows that they do go basically where you want them to go if you've got more skill than me now the the idea is that this that both sides of a conflict experience the one ball in a sort of with a different weights or different moral weights different import let's say mm -hmm. and that 
it's very easy to overkick a beach ball, but it's also very easy to underkick a football. And mm -hmm. so you have to tune how much force you're going to kick the ball with according to the weight of the ball, right? So it's possible for it to get out of hand. So if I apply too much kick to a beach ball or something that has too little weight attached to it, it's going to get out of hand very quickly. Yeah, if yeah. I apply too much, you know, if I apply too little kick to the football, um, to the regular weight football as, as one side perceives it, then it's not going to go far enough. So I have to tune the amount of force I have onto the ball whose weight I'm, I'm sort of experiencing in a different way. There's a kind of duality of mass. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. I'm, so going back to your sense of war of choice, imagine that the ball is a war of choice and that the aggressor, because they've decided to start this war, they're the ones making the running. So they yeah. have, this ball has a mass of 100 and they're applying a force of 100 because that's their effort against the mass, right? Now, we might not have, because we're only fighting for shrimp, uh, you know, in, in our Thai example, we may, yeah. we may have a very sort of light experience of what's expected, of what we expect a ball to be. And so if we overkick it, it's going to get out of hand. If we underkick it, then it's not going to go anywhere. So we have to try and balance somehow our sense of import of the war, or we have to artificially restrain ourselves in order to be able to apply more force in a controlled fashion so that we can control our beach ball. Mm, so okay. the idea is that the idea is that if one team has a weight apply a mass of a one hundred applied to a ball, we have to try and figure out how to make how we experience the mass of the conflict one hundred, even if that means that we need to sort of reduce the amount of force of you know that we use, but more use it in a more diffuse way to be able to control the ball or control the conflict in the same way that the other side can control the conflict because they're applying one hundred percent effort to one hundred percent mass. Does that right. help? Yes, absolutely. And I think it would also help to to discuss the two examples, the two wars that you discuss in the in the thesis, the Falklands and Kosovo, yeah. to just contextualize the various forces at play or, or uh, 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 weight. I'm just worried that people will get a little bit confused with yeah. mass, weight, no, force, no, no, effort, etc. Yeah. Right? Uh, now, my mum's a physicist, right? So I've grown <laughs> up, uh, grown up uh, with physics. So, so again, it spoke to me. Uh, but uh, I just don't want to well, lose somebody. I come sort from of my, a fine tradition of robbing scientific times. Okay, so let's look at the Falklands. So the Falklands <laughs> is really, the Falklands is really interesting. So the Falklands, sort of the origin of the conflict fundamentally is that Galtieri needed a quick domestic win because the economy was going south. And because of the historic claim of uh, Argentina against Las Malvinas, the Falklands, he was able to send a fairly small military contingent, which was able to overcome the resident marines in the Falklands and claim them for Argentina. Now, we have to say on this particular occasion, he didn't take it as serious, you know, he didn't apply the 100, although he probably yeah. applied as much force as was necessary to achieve that outcome. The difficulty for him was that Margaret Thatcher was in power and yeah. This was an affront to the British state. And all of a sudden, this became effectively, and again, I lived through this, an all-consuming effort to be yeah. able to retake the Falklands on behalf of the United Kingdom. So 
So there's that honor that we talked about. There's that honor. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. but also, I mean, there was sniffs of interest in there too. So yeah, what's yeah, yeah. so what's interesting about this is that the British, even though we might suggest that you, you know they were the attacked party, and so they were able to summon up as much force as they possibly could and head off to the Falklands in order to retake the Falklands um, at great cost. You know, it cost yeah. lives, ships, money, um, you, you know, huge effort was made. And Galtieri was unable to respond to that because he had completely misunderstood both the import of the Falklands to the Brit to Britain at the time and what it would take to keep the Falklands and to stop that conflict from spiraling out of control from him. Whereas, of course, the British were just like, go, go, and off we go. Um, and so what happened was that Argentina, one, failed to calculate how much force was going to be needed or to take the conflict as seriously as they should have taken it, and to summon up enough force to be able to repel the British um, sort of counter-operation. Yeah, Whereas yeah. the British turned up, you know, they, they turned oil tankers into aircraft carriers. They managed to fly um, uh, Vulcan V-bombers from Ascension all the way to the Falklands and eventually land them in Brazil. The British yeah. were able to basically expend any cost to be able to resolve the situation to their favor. And yeah. so what we have here is a, a, a misunderstanding of the mass that Britain yeah, would yeah. attach to regaining the Falklands. Galtier yeah. thought he was just going to get them and walk away. And by misunderstanding that immediate application you know, of seriousness to the conflict and yeah. the immediate mobilization of equipment and troops and money and aeroplanes to be able to take that, that articulated quite how important, you know, seriously Britain was taking it. Yeah, 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 he yeah. completely underestimated the import. You know, he didn't really have a lot of commitment to it. This was an attempt to basically head off domestic disaster in the polls because his economy was crashing. Yeah, Equally, yeah, yeah. he and he wasn't able to summon up enough um, force to be able to respond to what was coming down the Atlantic from the United Kingdom. And yeah, we look okay. at that. So the General Belgrano, horrible, horrible incident. I would suggest that the biggest mistake in the General Belgrano issue was one putting it to sea in the first place. Because Just give was, us a, the, 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 tell us what it, tell, tell us about it. So the General Belgrano, know. General Belgrano was a uh, Argentinian warship. It was actually uh, bought from the Americans. It was Second World War stock, and it was in terrible condition. Uh, didn't have you know the Argentina didn't have enough fuel to do for example regular training trips and that kind of stuff and it was sent to sea and it was sunk by a British submarine at the very edge of the uh sort of the zone of control that the British had declared <laughs> and it was an enormous controversy um questions asked in the houses of parliament um Lots of angry Argentinians, of course. Uh, lots of angry Brits about doing it and everything else. And you know, I don't understand why. Sorry, because it was outside of the. Of because the... it was it was allegedly out. It was it was sort of at the very edge of sort of where the British declared you know fair game on everything, and also it appeared right. to be steaming away. 
So it represented ah, okay, no right, tangible right, threat. Right, 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 right. So despite there appearing to be no tangible threat, the order was made to sink the Belgrano. And yeah. the Belgrano took, I think it was one, maybe two torpedoes, and sank immediately because it was yeah. in because so, it was in such terrible condition. The crew didn't stand a chance. Now yeah. I would suggest yeah. that the biggest error in the Belgrano incident was putting the ship to sea in the first place. And you're going to get yeah. lots of angry emails about that. I'm sorry, but <laughs> um, and, but we can uh, que- but we can question we can question the decisions made sort of in the run up to the shoot you know to to the shooting of the Belgrano and stuff like that. But as an expression of will, that you know, you don't it doesn't come much stronger. And yeah, I think yeah. that broadly speaking, that what we can see here is that interplay of the the experience of mass, the experience, you know, how the forces needed to manage the mass and how we manage how we sort of experience the war is really well demonstrated when dealing with, you know, for example, the Falklands. Now, you mentioned Um, another conflict and I got so carried away. Uh, it was Kosovo because yeah. you talked about Kosovo in the in, yeah. in the book. The, the, yeah, Kosovo, the, in Kosovo's, Kosovo's really really interesting because of course Kosovo is the first time that NATO did anything without international uh, without international authorization via the United Nations. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. what was su- such an affront to the NATO powers, um, the, uh, the, the the sort of the ethnic cleansing and the refugee crisis and everything else that. NATO applied an enormous amount of, you know, but it was uh, mass, but it was still a war of choice. And so what they did was they managed how they applied that force in a fairly tricksy and interesting way. So, for example, um, quite a lot of air power was used, um, first over Kosovo and then expanded to wider strategic targets, including the Chinese embassy. Whoops, sorry. Um, But ground forces weren't employed right at the very beginning. Now, this caused an immense amount of frustration for those who were on the borders of Kosovo prepared to go in. Um, Uh. And, you know, they wanted to go in and get the job done. But the thing was that the the conflict had to be managed. Now, is it possible to say that the West, you know, that the NATO command wasn't as fleet-footed when it came to making the decision to insert ground forces as it probably should have been. And I would agree on that. I think that they missed opportunities to bring the conflict to a successful close um, earlier. Um, and eventually, you know, sort of instead, of, you know, instead they decided to wait. But what's interesting about it is that NATO was obviously looking at, at tempering the use of force against sort of what was tolerable to NATO societies. Remember, they also had to keep Greece on board, which is quite hard because Greece had traditionally been quite pro-Serb. Um, uh-huh. And and so by, temp- by, by tempering the application, the points of application, the means of application, and the amount of application of force, they were able to s- sort of insert themselves into the conflict and certainly manipulate the conflict from the outside up to the point where they were interested, you know, where they were capable of going in. Now, when the Allied troops arrived in Kosovo, they did arrive fairly heavily um, supplied. There was a fairly large contingent of resources, including American, British and others, um, who arrived into Kosovo to sort of enforce peace. 
uh, and uh, it was a peace enforcement operation. It wasn't, you know. Now, in some cases, in a lot of cases, it was a peacemaking operation followed by peace enforcement, followed by peacekeeping. But by going in and going in with this clarity of idea of peace enforcement, they knew that they couldn't fight all out, that they had to they had to restrain themselves enough to get the job done, uh, but not more than to anger Serbia and, importantly, Russia any further than yeah, they already yeah. had. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. what's really interesting about Kosovo is that this is the first time we really see these ideas being played with or being used to manage a conflict to prevent it, one, sort of expanding, uh, while uh, still being able to get the job done and manipulating things like rules of engagement and other things so that we can so that the 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 goal can be achieved through absolute control rather than uh, just taking a massive great kick in it and hoping it hits the goal and i think that's really really interesting from my perspective absolutely and especially the idea of control but and i just want to get i want to get to that but i just want to clarify this the idea of mass because there's yeah. uh, uh, or distinguish between mass and moral weight yes because i think one strengthens the other when we say mass and i think you you, you explained this in in, in your variety we, you don't mean the physical mass the no, weight of the no, ships no, no, and the no, planes no, no, and no, the no. people right so mass the, is the, yeah, yeah mass is a yeah, robbed term now strategic theory uses mass and mass is the concentration of force in time and space Okay, uh -huh. strategic theory uh -huh. uses now. I use mass in terms of effectively moral importance. Okay, yes. yeah. so yeah. Um, so a war that I start, you know, I must assume that it's really morally important for me to to to, to fight it. Okay, now yeah. Yeah. an intervening power may not have the same amount of moral importance attached to it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. let's say I have. So let's say once, you know, I've started this fight, the, mo the moral importance is 100 for me out of a scale yeah, of 100. Yeah, yeah. Now, let's say you want to intervene, but it's, it's you know, on behalf of whoever it is I've declared war on. But it's yeah. not as morally important to you because it's not life and death, is it? Right. So it's only like a 70 to you. Mm. Now, if you... Which is Iraq, Iraq, Iraq for Australia, right? Iraq for Australia, 70. Great. Yeah. Happy days. Yeah. Now, if you pile in... The sort of force that you need to address something that's sort of morally important at a hundred to you, but it's only uh -huh. seventy, you're gonna wildly overkick the ball. And things uh -huh. are gonna, uh -huh. you know, it's uh -huh. gonna go wrong. So what you have to do then is you have to try and figure out how you can apply seventy. Uh -huh. Enough for that seventy. But maybe you wanna go more than seventy, but you know that you can't necessarily do, you know, to try and kick 75 with a force of 70 is going to lose control. To yeah. try and kick 65. If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode and gain access to all of the episodes of The Voices of War, simply become a subscriber using the link in the show notes. As you know, I will not feature any ads on the show, which is made possible solely through the support of our subscribers. If you find value in the content, you can become one now.